Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Chris, there's a uh, special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump and then tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. Wow. Now, we all knew this could be a volatile G7 meeting over the weekend in Quebec. I don't think anyone anticipated it would go off the rails as much as it did. That is White House Trade Advisor uh, Peter Navarro speaking on Fox News Sunday yesterday, reiterating the barrage of tweets from U.S. President Donald Trump taking aim at Justin Trudeau. And what did Justin Trudeau do anyway? Well, he didn't do anything. That's what makes this all so weird. Yeah, Justin Trudeau held his end of summit press conference, just like all the leaders did, just like Trump did before he left early. Justin Trudeau didn't say anything in that press conference he hadn't said already or hadn't said to Donald Trump's face. In fact, last week, you know, more than a week ago, when the U.S. announced that these tariffs on aluminum and steel were going to apply to Canada, Canada announced retaliatory tariffs. So he didn't announce anything new. We certainly didn't create supply management over the weekend, which seems to be the focus of Trump's ire. So I I really don't know what to make of all of this. Look, the tariffs that the Americans have imposed, I mean, this is divisive in the U.S. There are a lot of people opposed to this. The problem here for the U.S. president, who thinks he's going to back other countries into a corner, is that standing up now to these tariffs, retaliating against these tariffs, is going to be very popular. Canada, or any of these other countries in the G7. So it's a really strange mess we've got on our hands now. Clearly, Trump didn't want to be at that, that summit. Clearly, he's more focused on this meeting in Singapore, where he is today, meeting with the leader of North Korea. But to suggest that we stab the U.S. in the back is preposterous. Now, we can talk more about supply management, and I've been beating the drum of getting rid of supply management for a very long time. If people want to come around to that perspective, great. Because that certainly runs counter to the idea of NAFTA or any other trade deal we're a part of. So, too, do the massive U.S. subsidies for agriculture. So, fine, let's put all of this on the table if we want to. I mean, the story over a week ago was that Justin Trudeau had offered to go to Washington to get a NAFTA deal finalized, and the Americans were demanding he sign a sunset clause, a five-year sunset clause. So how did we go from that being the big issue to now supply management? It's all really weird. And I can't think of a time when relations between Canada and the U.S., or U.S. and its other main allies, uh, have been this, this fractured. Now, joining us for some thoughts on what we make of all of this, where we go from here, very pleased to welcome to the program Bob Murray, Managing Director of Government Affairs and Public Policy Group at Denton's Canada, based in Edmonton. Bob, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, yeah, we chatted on Friday, you know, said it might be good to do some, some G7 wrap-up on Monday, look at uh, how the summit went. Did you expect it would go as it did? 
No, well, nobody would have expected the the train wreck at the end. Um, I think everything leading up to the tweet storm when the president had already left was was somewhat predictable. Um, you know, it sounds like it was a pretty tense meeting. It sounds like the president showed up with his list of grievances that he wanted to bring up to all of the G7 partners, including uh, those NATO partners uh, regarding defense, uh, with, with others regarding trade. So it sounds like the president's intention was to swoop in, uh, use the G7 as an opportunity to air some of his grievances and to get out as quickly as possible and move on to the summit with North Korea um, while making it clear that he was the strong man in the room. Well, and I guess we knew that was the attitude coming in. Um, but what seems to have sparked his ire here? Well, I think more than anything else, it was that at the conclusion of the meeting, the media spin had already begun to turn that uh, Mr. Trump may not have handled himself very well, that other leaders didn't find themselves terribly intimidated by uh, Trump's remarks uh, on their defense spending, uh, Trump's remarks on tariffs and on trade. And then in the prime minister's closing press conference, he reiterated exactly as you said in your introduction, he reiterated that Canada was going to impose retaliatory tariffs. And it seemed that this sparked uh, the ire of the president because he was trying to go into the summit uh, in Singapore with North Korea from a position of power, which I would argue that he wasn't already, but he was trying to go in with this, uh, this image of a position of power. And by going in and having the Prime Minister of Canada criticize Trump's actions on trade and criticized Trump publicly, I think they saw that as a threat to the image they were trying to portray going into the summit with North Korea, and they felt that they had no choice but to double down uh, and to publicly attack the prime minister. So from your perspective, Trudeau didn't, didn't do anything per se. Oh, not at all. I actually think that the Prime Minister was incredibly measured. It was very clear that the Canadian delegation, uh, the Sherpas, everything else was done very specifically to try to encourage constructive dialogue knowing that there were significant tensions in that room uh, throughout the conference. And I thought the Prime Minister's uh, closing remarks were quite measured considering uh, what had happened at the conference as well as what had happened leading up to the conference. So it's not like the Prime Minister took the opportunity in his closing remarks to take any overt cheap shots at the U.S. or to escalate anything that the U.S. did not already know. I thought they were measured, I thought they were proportional, and I thought they were reasonable. And I think you see the level of support being uh, given to the prime minister from uh, you know from across the political spectrum here in Canada demonstrates that that there was really nothing questionable by what Mr. Trudeau said or did at the end of that conference. I think more than anything that this was a perception on the part of uh, Mr. Trump and his team, uh, and rather than uh, deal with it in the traditional means that we would see anything dealt with through the international diplomatic system, we saw yet again uh, the president, uh, while on his plane, took to Twitter and uh, doubled down on some of that rhetoric that is, in, first of all, in no way helpful to the ongoing NAFTA negotiations, but certainly left a lot of people on both sides of the border scratching their heads. Right, yeah, it was quite remarkable, as you allude to. I mean, you had Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, you had uh, Doug Ford, the incoming Premier of Ontario, you had Jason Kenney, all of these people lining up to say that they, they side with, with Justin Trudeau. So, I mean, if, you know, if Trump's goal was to, to unify Canadians, then the mission accomplished, but I, I really doubt that it was. No, but I, I think it's also important, Rob, and, and we've talked about this previously, that it's, Mr. Trump is almost always speaking to a domestic political base, 
Right. Uh, that And part of what got him elected from that base was the tough talk on NAFTA, the tough talk on trade deficits in unfair deals. And so it's, it's so important for Mr. Trump and the strategy that they've employed really from day one of being in office to make sure that they are speaking to that base and galvanizing that base around these tough talk messages, regardless of whether they're grounded in fact, and arguably I would say that from day one none of this was grounded in fact, even throughout the campaign leading up to the presidential election uh, regarding NAFTA. Uh, And they're still trying to take extraordinary advantage of domestic American political attitudes around free trade agreements and also multilateral agreements and defense arrangements where the perception is that all of these free riders rely on the United States and the U.S. funds their way, and there's a, a large constituency within the U.S. that wants to see this rectified or Stopped. And so that's very much what he's trying to appeal to with these comments. And, you know, look no further than the fact that the means through which they look to carry their message, number one being Twitter usually, because it speaks directly to people without any kind of media filter. But if they do want to use traditional media, they go through Fox because they know that their base watches Fox and it's a way of, of appealing and speaking directly to that base. And so uh, this is a strategy they've been using from day one, but particularly on this issue. And I, I also think it's important to bear in mind that you know, really up until these most recent attacks on Canada and on NAFTA, even American Democrats were not unified behind NAFTA. Hillary Clinton uh, was taking shots at the NAFTA arrangement throughout yeah. the presidential campaign. So it's never the idea of global free international free trade and NAFTA were not widely popular in the U.S., which is something that Mr. Trump and his folks know, and which is why they are continuing to harp on this message of unfair deals that need to be changed. I don't know if you, you caught any of Stephen Harper on, on Fox yesterday. I'm going to play some of it a little bit later on. But uh, I, I thought he did a really excellent job in, in making the case for Canada, making the case for the Canada-U.S. relationship, but doing in a way that, that reaches that crowd. And I, I don't know if Donald Trump himself would have been watching, but almost you know, parsing it in a way that, that even Donald Trump himself, I think, could, could appreciate. Yeah, well, I mean, of course I would give uh, kudos to my Denton's colleague, uh, Mr. Harper, um, for not only the quality of the interview, but also, as you said, the, uh, the where he did the interview, the fact that he went on to Fox and therefore was speaking to the base that Trump and his folks are often speaking to. And what I thought was, was quite reasonable about Mr. Harper's interview was, uh, as you say, not only talking about the Canada-U.S. relationship, but emphasizing the areas where we do have common interests in a very complex world. You know, Mr. Harper was uh, quick to support uh, President Trump uh, on pulling out of the Iran deal and his concerns there, uh, and also some of the comments about Russia. So I, I think that it was important to highlight what the two nations have in common and why I think people on both sides of the border are, are so confused by this intent, clear intent that has been doubled and tripled down now from the Trump administration to try to vilify Canada uh, for virtue of not only the NAFTA deal, but certainly more than that by virtue of some of the personal attacks on the Canadian Prime Minister. So I thought Mr. Harper was an important part of that chorus, as you had alluded to, with Jason Kenney and Doug Ford, uh, Andrew Scheer, Rachel Notley, all coming to the support uh, of the Prime Minister. You also had a former Prime Minister who does garner respect in Conservative circles by virtue of being a Conservative, uh, coming out and, and saying the same type of thing. So I think all of that lends itself to uh, trying to reach a domestic U.S. audience to emphasize that there is far more in common than there is dividing. Because, I, I mean, yeah, that, that's the issue here is how does Canada become the problem? We don't necessarily see eye to eye on, on everything. And then, as you say, that, that's nothing new. Um, but, I mean, the G7 in particular, even just the Canada-U.S. relationship, to be able to stand up and, and present a, a united front against uh, China, for example, and, and some legitimate concerns about Chinese trade practices, that it doesn't seem as though this president is, is all that interested in, in having allies. 
Well, no, I, I think this it's almost like there, there's an intentional effort to foster an eternal state of instability, and that that's something that they feel that they can operate in. And I think some of it is they, they do not feel this administration does not feel that multilateral uh, alliances and international institutions and the global governance framework that the U.S. has been integral in constructing since the end of World War II uh, serves its purpose anymore. And so if that's the case, then the best thing to do is to destabilize it and then ultimately dismantle it. Uh, and that seems to be the concentrated effort that the Trump administration is working from with regards to its approach to multilateralism. Now, one might feel a little more pessimistic about the f- future of NAFTA following the last couple of days, but do you think that there's a difference between what actually is going on with negotiations uh, and, and the bluster from the administration? I would say that most of the time that would be the case, and that would, that's traditional experience regardless of who's president or who's prime minister, that the vast majority of the business and the bilateral relationship between Canada and the U.S. gets done at levels below uh, the leaders. Uh, but in this case, we've, we've now heard uh, multiple examples of deal, the NAFTA deal being either close or making progress, and then the president of the United States himself intervenes and tries to take things in a different direction or insists that different things get put on the table. So the question really is, does the president actually want a tri-party NAFTA deal? Uh, and if he does, under what pretense is that going to be seen to be acceptable? And again, I would go back to that domestic political situation where Mr. Trump has to come away from these renegotiations or these negotiations with some kind of tangible win that he can hold up to say, Previous administrations were weak. They got bad deals. I've been able to come in and get something better. Whether it's true or not uh, you know, remains to be seen, but that's really one of the things that Canada and Mexico and the NAFTA negotiations have to be considering, is that American domestic political audience is really going to drive the approach of the U.S. administration in those talks. And, of course, we know that Canada and Mexico have their own national interests that they have to stand up for and not capitulate on. And then also Canada and Mexico have their own domestic political constituencies that they have to appeal to, knowing that we have a Mexican election on the horizon, knowing that we're about a year and a half away from the Canadian federal election. So electoral politics are playing, and and domestic politics are playing a significant role in impacting those discussions at any NAFTA table. It's interesting because supply management is something that the president has focused on in Canada's high tariffs that exist to protect dairy and poultry. I certainly think that should be on the table. Uh, I'd be happy to see that that policy scrap. But it, I mean, it's almost like we created this this dynamic now where Canadians are going to rally behind it because we don't want to be seen, you know, caving into this kind of bullying. Well, I, I think if, there is certainly a, a time and place to discuss supply management, both from a domestic perspective as well as a bilateral or trilateral perspective, this is not the way to do it. Uh, I don't think that the, by virtue of trying to bully Canada out of its supply management protectionist system is going to yield the result that the U.S. administration wants. Uh, and we saw, you know, over the, before the, the coverage had turned on G7, we saw Andrew Scheer, for instance, coming out and overtly defending yeah. uh, the supply management system, which is quite interesting in itself, uh, based on the, the traditional ideological spectrums. And so, you know, Canadians, and in, in, you, you know, Rob, better than most, Canadians are not traditionally free traders. We don't have internal free trade. We have the supply management system. And, you know, so as we're talking about the situation with NAFTA, as we were talking about with TPP at the outset of the U.S. administration, the Trump administration, there are domestic things that Canada should and must be doing to try to make itself more globally competitive 
uh, economically and with to make itself a more attractive investment opportunity for investors elsewhere in the world that we simply don't really want to be taking. But we now seem to be unified behind this idea of NAFTA, not necessarily, I think, because of the business of NAFTA and the fact that it's a free trade agreement, but more than that, because of the symbolism around it and the fact that we're trying to be bullied into a, into a deal that might not be palatable for Canada. So whether this marks a greater shift in Canadians thinking around free trade in the way that protectionism works will be really interesting moving forward, or whether it's isolated to this one specific instance by virtue of the way that the U.S. administration is behaving. Yeah, well said. Uh, Bob, we'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Uh, that is Bob Murray. More at uh, drbobmurray.ca, uh, Managing Director with Denton's Canada. Uh, another former politician, by the way, who's found himself with Denton's is uh, James Moore former Conservative cabinet minister, and I love this tweet from him uh, over the weekend. The Canada needs to respond with action. Let's move forward on absolute free trade within Canada. Get shovels in the ground on the pipeline. Ratify the TPP and advocate its ratification abroad. Find fiscal room and lower taxes on investment business in a fall economic update. Let's roll. Right? Let's do this. Okay, it's uh, DEFCON 1 now. We're in, a, we're in a bit of a pickle here because perhaps this U.S. president is willing to pull the pin on NAFTA, and that's going to hurt Canada, or if he's going to respond with, with other tariffs, tariffs on automobiles or God knows what. Okay, well, let's not sit around waiting to, to deal with the aftermath. Let's get proactive here and find ways to, to enhance our competitive advantage. Right, we've got the Canada-Europe free trade agreement. We've got the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. Let's get that ratified. Let's get that operational. Let's make ourselves competitive as well. So I, I think he's right, and, and hopefully this will be a wake-up call that we need to do all of these things and, and still hopefully save NAFTA. But, I mean, you just look at how erratic and unpredictable this, this president is. I mean, is there even much we can do at this point? Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.